you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to continue looking at the blessed pilgrim. And we've been looking over the past several weeks about the different blessings that we have as pilgrims in this world. Again, we are called, Peter addresses this um, letter to pilgrims, to strangers and foreigners, those who do not belong on this earth. And so it can become very easy for us when we are living in a world wherein we do not belong to feel like there's no blessing here, to feel like everything is strange and odd. And, and to some extent, that's very true. But God yet has provided for us blessings that we can look to as we walk the pilgrim pathway that we've been called to walk. And we saw two weeks ago how we have the blessing of a spiritual family, that there is a loving spiritual family. We see in our passage in um, in. Verse 8, that we are to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. And that that brotherly love binds us together as a people. And then that brotherly love, from that flows like-mindedness. We have unity of mind, and that unity of mind comes from a humble mind, as is said in verse 8. And then we're to be tender-hearted towards each other. And that comes with sympathy that we have. And then, so we have this spiritual family that we're drawn together in by God's grace, and then we also have the blessing of being a blessing. And we saw how we are called not to retaliate when we are mistreated, not to respond in kind to the way that people treat us, but rather we are to seek to be a blessing. And there is a truth that if we do this, as we see at the, verse, at the end of verse 9, that if we do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this we were called, we will obtain a blessing. Now, Peter makes these statements. We will receive a blessing. And, and we talked about how he quotes the psalmist in, in, uh, in verses 10 through 12. And if we look at that, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so we recognize there is a blessing that we are promised. But then look at what happens in verse 13, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so we may be tempted to think that the blessing that Peter speaks of is a blessing that means, well, we'll be immune from difficulty and affliction in this life. But notice what he says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer For righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. I want to read to you what our Lord said in Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 33. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If not, I'll read it for you. 
Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. How bad is this going to get? Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father, his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated. By all, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master if they have called the master of the house Beelzebub. How much more will they malign those of his household? So what are we to do? Verse 26. Have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the heads of your hair, or the the hairs of your head, are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You You are of more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives us a lot of promises in the Gospels. And there are certain promises that we love to cling to. He's going to prepare a place for us. In His house are many spaces, and I know some of you like the older translation, mansions, because we all want our mansion up there, right? Jesus speaks of the salvation that he brings to all those who trust in him. Jesus speaks of how he takes away the wrath of God through his sacrifice on the cross. There are wonderful promises that Jesus gives us in his word. But so often we neglect to recognize that Jesus is also giving us another promise in what we've read. A promise that as pilgrims, the world 
will treat us in a certain way. And so this is what Peter points us to now as we come to verses 14 through 17. Look with me in verses 14 through 17. He says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So, I'm adding the so there, what's the, what's the conclusion? Have no, what? Fear of them, nor be troubled. But instead, instead of putting your efforts and your energies into anxiety and being troubled, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. See, the reality is the servant is not above the master. How are we to handle the accusations, the slanderous speech and persecution of a world that Jesus has promised us will hate us? This is what Peter points us to here in these passages. As we see our third point about what we have as the blessed pilgrim, there is the blessing of persecution. The blessing of persecution. And this seems like an oxymoron. How can persecution be a pathway to blessing? But I think as we look through what Peter points us to, we will see a glorious truth that persecution is a blessing. And this begins by recognizing that persecution is a blessing. Not to sound redundant, but persecution is a blessing. Our, our regular way of thinking chafes at that idea. How can suffering, how can being maligned by the world, how can slander be a blessing for us? Again, notice that Peter is encouraging us in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. There is no contradiction in Peter's mind. He is making a statement of objective truth. Persecution is a means to blessing. Now, it's important to note for us what he's talking about when he speaks of the harm that he refers to. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so that, that statement in verse 13 may bring us up to say, well, well, then obviously we're not going to be persecuted. But then in the next breath, he talks about suffering. He talks about suffering for the sake of righteousness. So what is the harm that he's referring to here that we cannot be, that cannot touch us? 
Well, I think as we looked at in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus makes the statement, we are not to fear men and what they can do to us, but rather we are to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And there's only one judge of this world, and it is our God. He's calling us to recognize that fear, true fear, is not to fear the threatenings and the lies and the accusations of the world, but to fear who our God is. See, there is a reality that God's face is against those who do evil, as we saw in verse 12. David brings up this point in Psalm 118. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. So if God is on my side, what's the conclusion? I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper, is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph over those who hate me. So there is a very clear indication from Scripture that if God is on our side, can anyone ultimately harm us? And the answer is no. So it's absolutely true what Peter says in verse 13. There is no one to harm us if we're zealous for good works, for what is good. But then he makes the seemingly contradictory statement that even if we should suffer for righteousness' sake, we will be blessed. And I think this is where we have to step back and realize that suffering is not harm. Suffering is actually a means to blessing. Now, this is a reality that's borne out throughout the Scriptures. If you read the Old Testament, if you read the New Testament, you read the book of Acts, God's people often suffer. And so this blessing that he speaks of stands in a whole torrential downpour of biblical history that points us to blessing through suffering. There's blessing in the past. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of what we know as the the hall of faith. And really it is the hall of the faithfulness of Christ. But as we see here, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith. He's speaking of of the patriarchs. And notice what he says about them. They didn't receive the things promised. They saw them and greeted them from afar, and they acknowledged that they were what? Strangers and exiles. And who is Peter writing to? The same people, strangers and exiles. We hold that in common with them. And then he goes on to speak of other events in the Old Testament. And he begins to conclude in Hebrews 11, 32. He says, who through faith, these individuals, they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they obtained promises, they stopped the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. And we're like, yes, that sounds great. But he's not done. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They were went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then notice what he says of these, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These individuals were so blessed that they were not worthy of the world in which they walked. Or the world was not worthy for them to walk upon it. So there is a reality that suffering is borne out throughout the entirety of Scripture as blessings that are seen in the past. But there's also, particularly for who Peter is writing to, they are currently experiencing those persecutions. And so they, at their point in the first century um, A.D., they are also experiencing those blessings in that present time. Notice what Jesus says about a kingdom person in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. We are what when we're reviled and persecuted and people utter all kinds of evil against us falsely? We are what? Ble- we're what? Say it. Blessed. blessed. We're blessed even if these things are happening in our lives. And again, Jesus As sure as he promised that he will come again for his people, so he has promised that his people will receive persecution and suffer. And just as sure as those two promises are, so it is also sure that we receive blessing from persecution. We see this among the apostles in Acts Acts 5. They're being persecuted, and so the, the, the religious leaders, they call them together, And they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And notice what the apostles' response was to that. They left the presence of the council doing what? Rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy to what? To suffer. Dishonor for the name. So there's blessing in the past, there's blessing in the present, and then there is the hope of future blessing. It is likely that that is the main focus of what Peter is looking to here. We see in Matthew 5.12, Jesus promised in Matthew 5.11, you are blessed if people are slandering you, if they're persecuting you, if they're doing evil to you, you are blessed. So what should our response be? Well, we should, like the apostles, rejoice. And be glad when persecution comes because our reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before us. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 8. He said he considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The suffering that we face on this world is temporary, but the relief and the deliverance and the glory we receive in Christ endures forever. And so Paul says it's not even worth comparing the two. Paul elsewhere speaks of how we suffer a light momentary affliction that is working within us an eternal weight of glory. And we even see this displayed for us in the book of Revelation 
where the fifth seal is opened and John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they are crying out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And then notice, they were each given a white robe and they were told to what? To rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Persecution is a blessing. We need to change the way we view affliction and difficulty in this world. Because if you only view affliction, if you only view persecution from that negative sense, then when persecution truly comes to this country, and listen, I know things are bad in this country, but we ain't seen nothing yet. So when it comes, we have God's word that is preparing us. How will you respond? Will you seek the lesser joy of ease of this life and denying Christ? Or will you stand proclaiming Him boldly, suffering for His name's sake and looking to an eternal weight of glory reserved for you in heaven? Persecution is a blessing. But let's be honest. You know, you read verses like Acts chapter 5 where they were beaten. Anybody looking forward to being beaten? See, the reality is, is these truths are in God's Word, but it is also easy for us to fear the prospect of persecution. I read of what happens to believers in nations across this world today in places like Afghanistan, in places like Syria, in places like Central and Northern and Southern, pretty much all of Africa. There's just atrocious things happening to believers for the name of Christ. And the thought of that coming here is jarring. It's fearful. Notice what Peter tells us in verse 14. Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So have no fear of them, nor be troubled. The second thing we see about the blessing of persecution is we need not fear persecution. There is great hope in the promises of future blessings from our Lord, But when we are faced with the difficulty of persecution now, it feels very difficult. I can't imagine what it would feel like to actually face a true threat, a gun to your forehead, a machete at the back of your neck. And the call comes, will you deny Christ? And at that moment, there is great fear that can grip the heart of a believer. It's understandable. Peter here 
is alluding to or quoting a passage from Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 through 13, he quotes, and I think it's important we understand what's going on when Isaiah speaks of this. There is a league of Israel, the northern kingdom, which has now been split from the southern kingdom. They have gone in league with Rezin, the king of Syria. There actually had just been a battle for a town near in Judah that the, uh, Isra- that the, the soldiers of Judah, 120,000 of them were killed in that battle, and 200,000 Ju- Judeans were taken captive and taken away from their home. And so Pekah, the, the northern kingdom king, and Rezin, the king of Syria, they now turn their sights to Jerusalem. And they surround the city. And Jerusalem is besieged by these combined forces of the northern kingdom and the king of Syria. Now, battles in those days were ruthless. And particularly the way that individuals that were known to be of renown or repute in a town where treated was absolutely dreadful. There was a common practice of impaling the kings and the court officials in those days. Isaiah is a prophet of God. He was not an official court official, but he was often before the king speaking the word of God. And so he would be a target for absolutely terrible Things being done to him. As this huge army, which has already defeated the armies of Judah once, now besieges Judah. I mean, we, we get fearful when we hear about a war happening on the other side of the planet. Imagine that there were armies that were circling around Carnegie at this moment. We would be scared. But God had made a promise to Isaiah. He told Isaiah, look, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to deliver my people. And that promise was explained to the people. And and in Isaiah chapter 7, it describes both King Ahaz and the people shaking like trees in the wind. I mean, they are absolutely scared. And so God speaks to Isaiah, and he says to Isaiah with, and this is so encouraging, with his strong hand upon me. Is there any hand stronger than our Lord's? No. And he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy what this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they dread, nor be in dread, nor do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. He is commanding Isaiah to cast off fear. And instead to fear who? The Lord of hosts. Him you shall fear as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. See, the reality is that fear is not to be a part of the vocabulary of God's people. 
fear of men. Rather, our fear must be of God and Him alone. Now, how do we do that? And the Savior is so gracious. He's so gracious in the words He says to His people. We see, first of all, that we fight back fear and concern or troubled hearts as Peter describes it in verse 14. We fight back fear with faith in Christ. Notice what Jesus says in John 14, verse 1. He commands us again, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I mean, this is... This is basic gospel stuff, isn't it? The message of the gospel is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I mean, it doesn't get more basic than that when it comes to understanding the Christian life. So what is our hope when difficulties, when affliction, when persecution, or anything else comes into our life that would cause us to fear and be troubled? It is don't do those things. Instead, trust. Turn to your Savior and trust and rest in Him. We can trust and have confidence in God's promises that He will not turn back those promises to us. Instead of troubled hearts, we must have faith-filled hearts. And then, not only is faith in Christ the thing that we look to for victory over fear, but then there is peace from Christ that gives us hope over fear. And in this same chapter, in John chapter 14, Jesus has called his disciples to not be afraid, not fear, but to believe in him. But then he doesn't just leave us to feel our way through that on our own. Notice what he promises. He promises what? Peace. Peace I leave with you. It's interesting that he says he's leaving it with his disciples. He's soon to go away. He's soon to ascend to the Father. And in fact, the disciples are going to get a little bit of a, of a, of a preview of what their lives are going to be like when Jesus is arrested in the garden. And we're going to see how fragile their faith is. When Jesus is arrested, they all scatter. They all run away. But notice what Jesus says. Even as, as he knows he's going to come and he's going to have victory over death, victory over the, the Roman legions that are oppressing him, he says, when, even though that's going to happen and he knows he's going to ascend to the Father, he leaves his people with peace. That means that it remains with us. It is with us at all times. In other words, we have an unlimited resource of peace in Christ. But it is His peace, and it is not the peace that the world gives to us. And this is where we get off track. Because we look at the world living its lives, going about its ways, and, and we think, oh man, they seem so happy, they seem so content. If I only had X, Y, Z, then I'd be able to have peace in my life. You know, if, if I only had this amount of money, then I would feel fine for the rest of my life. I, I've, I think I've said this before, I, I, and it, I think it's entirely appropriate to pray for this, but it's also 
probably something I shouldn't be leaning on. I've, I've often said, you know, if I just had a million dollars, I could set that up and, and I would live off of that for the rest of my life. Although that's getting harder and harder to do in our day and age. And so I pray to the Lord, Lord, give me a million dollars. Hasn't happened yet. And not that he couldn't do that. And not that there's anything wrong with him doing that for someone. But if you think about it, without those things, I'm dependent upon him more and more every day. And so my peace can't be in a million dollars. Because the thing is, is a million dollars can vanish like that. You ever read what happens to lottery jackpot winners? So I'm not looking for the peace that the world gives. I need peace that Christ alone can give. And when I have that peace, then notice what the command is. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be afraid. So we have peace from Christ that gives us hope over fear. We have faith in Christ that brings fear or brings hope. And then if we look at what Isaiah says in Isaiah 26, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. And this is what I love about this. Judah, which has been, which, which will eventually be taken captive, right? It's this, not, God is promising to deliver them from this particular threat, and He does. But there is a wonderful promise that one day in Judah there will be a song that is sung. We have a strong city. Why? Because He sets up salvation on, as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. What does God do? He keeps him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he what? Trusts in you. So, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord our God is an everlasting rock. We need not Fear persecution. Which brings us finally to say, well, then we must fear the Lord. We must fear the Lord. And this is what Peter uses for the rest of the passage in verse 15 through 17. We see that fear of the Lord begins through heartfelt reverence. In your hearts, he says in verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He calls us to honor Christ. This is to fear the Lord. In fact, the the King James translates this a little bit closer to the original. It uses the the idea of honor. It literally means to sanctify, to set apart, or to make holy. Sanctify the Lord in your heart. Set Him apart as holy. And in fact, the way way it means make Christ holy, who is holy. That's literally what it it reads. So what what do you think Peter is trying to get across? Christ 
is holy. So we must reverence him that way. We must fear him in our lives. We must consider him to be holy. And then this begins not in our outward actions. You know, I talked about this several months ago in a sermon. The the term holy has sort of become like a dirty word. You know, who who wants to be holy? It's this holier-than-thou type of idea. And, And we have this idea that, like, holiness is just about legalism. And it doesn't have outward effects if we're truly seeking to be like Christ. Yes, it does, but it begins where? In our heart. Sanctify the Lord in your hearts as holy. Listen, you can put on the mask. You can put on a show. You can have everything externally like it's supposed to be. And you'd be no better than the um, Pharisees, which Jesus calls whitewashed sepulchers. Fancy tombs that have rotting corpses inside them. We must have heartfelt reverence for Christ. It has to happen in our hearts. And then that leads us then, secondly, to having a prepared defense. If Christ is is revered in our lives, and that is changing the way we act, which he's going to talk about in just a second, then there are going to be people who come along and they ask us a reason for the hope that is in us. And, and, and the reality that Peter is pointing to is, particularly for the believers that he's writing to, they were being chased all over the Roman Empire. They're being persecuted. They're being fed to lions. And people are doing this to, their apl- to applause. I mean, could you imagine your last moments on this earth? People are cheering for your death. And so you're still interacting in the world in which you live. You still interact in your communities. You still are clearly saying you're a Christian, and maybe they haven't come for you yet, but you still boldly proclaim Christ. And your neighbor's going to come and like, what is wrong with you? How can you do this? Don't you know what they do to Christians? And if we are in our hearts, reverencing the Lord, sanctifying Him as holy in our hearts, then out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Speaks. And we're able to give a defense. Look, I'm blessed. I Even if they take me and bind me and kill me, I am blessed. I have a hope within me that carries me through these things. We have to have a prepared defense, but we do it in the right manner. Notice what he says at the end of verse 15. Yet we are to do it with what? Gentleness and respect. I don't know about you, but like when someone does something against me, my first thoughts aren't gentleness and respect. Someone cuts you off in traffic, not feeling very gentle in respect. If we have that problem with something as simple as traffic, how are we going to do when people are killing us? 
How do, how do we treat individuals who slander us with gentleness and respect? And the answer is because we reverence Christ in our hearts. It is an indication of His grace at work within us that the way in which we respond is gentle and respectful. See, our desire is to lash out. You know, people will say things like, Christians are a bunch of holier-than-thou people. They're a bunch of hypocrites. They only care about what goes on with women's bodies or what people do in their bedrooms, and it's none of their business, and they likely would throw in some choice words along with that. That's a lie. We speak the truth because we love the world. And so our desire when those things happen and we're having these discussions is to lash out. That's not true. And, to, and to, to jump down people's throats and to argue with them and to get heated in those arguments. Is that how we're to correct those who rise up against us? Is that how we're to answer those who ask for that hope? The answer is no. We must be Christ-like. I think of the story of Christ when he's before the high priest and they're asking him questions and he's not answering them. And it, it frustrates one of the, the guards of the temple and he comes and he slaps Christ across the face. He says, would you not answer the, the high priest? And Jesus just looks at him and says, if I've said something wrong, tell me. But otherwise, why do you slap me? Why do you hit me? Beautiful example of a gentle response. This is what Paul tells Timothy to do in 2 Timothy 2. The Lord's servant must not be, what? Quarrelsome. But kind to who? Everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And then Paul says something that you're sort of like, did you really mean this, Paul? Because he says that the way and the manner in which we respond to those who lash out against us, God can use that to perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And the greatest example of that is the Apostle Paul himself, who once was a blasphemer and a persecutor of Jesus Christ and turns into the one who was telling Timothy, don't respond harshly. Respond with gentleness. And so fear of the Lord brings a prepared defense, which then is going to show itself finally through Christ-like behavior. Notice in verse 16, we answer them with gentleness and respect so that we can have a good conscience. Here, here's the reality, right? You know, you know when you've crossed the line with someone. You know when you've done what's wrong. You know when someone's got underneath your skin and instead of responding in a Christ-like way, you've responded in a fleshly way. And for the believer, you know what's going to eat at you? Your conscience. 
It's going to eat and eat and eat at you until you make things right. And so Peter is saying, well, just don't do that. So you can have a good conscience. So that when you're slandered, and again, slander is not truth, it's a lie. And the world's going to slander, slander us. They're going to speak all manner of evil against us falsely. So this goes back to where, where are we concerned about our reputations? Right? Are we really concerned about the way that the world looks at us? Or are we concerned about how Christ looks at us? So when we're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Look, it is, it is, it is clear, it is embedded in the very fibers of our DNA, what evil is. We know it. Intuitively, we know it. We, we have that truth, but we suppress it. And the world is suppressing it. And we see that in, in our newspapers, in our media articles, and our news reports. We see the world suppressing truth all around us. And so we think, well, they're not going to be put to shame. They know. Those who celebrate wickedness know that it's wickedness. And even if their darkened hearts don't realize it in this world, there will be a day where they will stand before the righteous, holy judge, and they will be shamed. So don't add to their onslaught of reviling. Don't give them ammo. Don't make it so that their accusations stick. So that all they can see then is your, and this is so clear, your good behavior in who? In Christ. Christ-likeness is the goal of the Christian life. It is necessary for us by virtue of our being made more like Christ to suffer for knowing Him. Not for our own sinfulness. And that is what verse 17 points us to. It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You know, there have been a lot of scandals that have rocked the Christian world of late, and some of those scandals are legitimate. There have been for many years abuse that has happened within churches that has been swept under the rug. And I have read articles of people bemoaning the so-called persecution of the world in prosecuting terrible crimes against children. That's not persecution. That's suffering for doing evil. So how do we determine, how do we, how do we set the expectation that we would suffer for doing good while well, we seek to be like Christ? In our actions and in our activities and in the way in which we conduct ourselves in the world around us, we want to be like Him. And our Savior was persecuted. In fact, that's the greatest blessing of persecution. 
being able to know the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. So when we look at what Peter tells us here to do, this is the pathway to responding like the apostles did in Acts chapter 5. Going out after just being beaten, rejoicing, because we were counted worthy to suffer for the name of our Savior. Truly, the pilgrim is blessed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the truth we find in it. and We ask, Lord, today that you would work in our midst through your spirit. Father, help us to not fear those who can kill the body, but, Father, may we live to fear you, the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Father, may we sanctify you in our hearts as holy. Father, work in our midst by your Spirit. Change us, mold us more into the image of Christ. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood.